Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. We've heard stories here of detective heroes, none from the official ranks of the police, to be sure, but brilliant outsiders who bring a special intelligence and imagination that end up solving the crime. Think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, think G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown. Tonight, let's go to the other side and spend some time with the gentleman thief and master of disguise, Arsène Lupin. He was created by the French writer Maurice Leblanc in 1905. Lupin is not an evil character. Leblanc makes him very amusing and admirable, a resourceful thief, more amiable than his wealthy victims. He is not quite a Robin Hood. He steals from the rich and keeps what he steals. Like Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, Lupin became so phenomenally popular that he kept his creator from pursuing intended projects of a more serious nature. Arsène Lupin appeared in 39 short stories and 17 novels. I was reminded of these stories when Susan and I started watching the Lupin series starring Omar Sy that has become one of the most popular productions ever on Netflix. The current series is updated, its protagonist a fan of Arsène Lupin. Tonight, let's go back to the original series. Here is the original story, The Arrest of Arsène Lupin. It was a strange ending to a voyage that had commenced in a most auspicious manner. The transatlantic steamer La Provence was a swift and comfortable vessel under the command of a most affable man. The passengers constituted a select and delightful society. The charm of new acquaintances and improvised amusements served to make the time pass agreeably. We enjoyed the pleasant sensation of being separated from the world, living, as it were, upon an unknown island, and consequently obliged to be sociable with each other. Have you ever stopped to consider how much originality and spontaneity emanate from these various individuals who, on the preceding evening, did not even know each other, and who are now for several days condemned to lead a life of extreme intimacy, jointly defying the anger of the ocean, the terrible onslaught of the waves, the violence of the tempest, and the agonizing monotony of the calm and sleepy water. Such a life becomes a sort of tragic existence, with its storms and its grandeurs, its monotony and its diversity, and that is why, perhaps, we embark upon that short voyage with mingled feelings of pleasure and fear. But during the past few years a new sensation had been added to the life of the transatlantic traveler. The little floating island is now attached to the world from which it was once quite free. A bond united them, even in the very heart of the watery wastes of the Atlantic. That bond is the wireless telegraph, by means of which we receive news in the most mysterious manner. We know full well that the message is not transported by the medium of a hollow wire. No, the mystery is even more inexplicable, more romantic, and we must have recourse to the wings of the air in order to explain this new miracle. During the first day of the voyage we felt that we were being followed, 
escorted, preceded even by that distant voice which, from time to time, whispered to one of us a few words from the receding world. Two friends spoke to me, ten, twenty others sent gay or somber words of parting to other passengers. On the second day, at a distance of five hundred miles from the French coast, in the midst of a violent storm, we received the following message by means of the wireless telegraph. Arsène Lupin is on your vessel, first cabin, blonde hair, wound right forearm, traveling alone, under the name of R. At that moment a terrible flash of lightning rent the stormy skies. The electric waves were interrupted. The remainder of the dispatch never reached us. Of the name under which Arsène Lupin was concealing himself, we knew only the initial. If the news had been of some other character, I have no doubt that the secret would have been carefully guarded by the telegraphic operator as well as by the officers of the vessel. But it was one of those events calculated to escape from the most rigorous discretion. The same day, no one knew how, the incident became a matter of current gossip, and every passenger was aware that the famous Arsène Lupin was hiding in our midst. Arsène Lupin in our midst, the irresponsible burglar, whose exploits had been narrated in all the newspapers during the past few months, the mysterious individual with whom Ganimard, our shrewdest detective, had been engaged in an implacable conflict amidst interesting and picturesque surroundings. Arsène Lupin, the eccentric gentleman who operates only in the chateaux and salons, and who, one night, entered the residence of Baron Schormann, but emerged empty-handed, leaving, however, his card, on which he had scribbled the words, Arsène Lupin, gentleman burglar, will return when the furniture is genuine. Arsène Lupin, the man of a thousand disguises, in turn a chauffeur, detective, bookmaker, Russian physician, Spanish bullfighter, commercial traveler, robust youth, or decrepit old man. Then consider this startling situation. Arsène Lupin was wandering about within the limited bounds of a transatlantic steamer, in that very small corner of the world, in that dining saloon, in that smoking room, in that music room. Arsène Lupin was perhaps this gentleman or that one, my neighbor at the table, the sharer of my stateroom. "'And this condition of affairs will last for five days,' exclaimed Miss Nellie Underdown next morning. "'It is unbearable. I hope he will be arrested.' Then, addressing me, she said, "'And you, Monsieur Dondrezy, you are on intimate terms with the captain. Surely you know something?' I should have been delighted had I possessed any information that would interest Miss Nellie. She was one of those magnificent creatures who inevitably attract attention in every assembly. Wealth and beauty form an irresistible combination, and Nellie possessed both. Educated in Paris under the care of a French mother, she was now going to visit her father, the millionaire Underdown of Chicago. She was accompanied by one of her friends, Lady Gerland. At first I had decided to open a flirtation with her, but in the rapidly growing intimacy of the voyage I was soon impressed by her charming manner, and my feelings became too deep and reverential for a mere flirtation. Moreover, she accepted my attentions with a certain degree of favor. 
She condescended to laugh at my witticisms and display an interest in my stories. Yet I felt that I had a rival in the person of a young man with quiet and refined tastes, and it struck me at times that she preferred his taciturn humor to my Parisian frivolity. He formed one in the circle of admirers that surrounded Miss Nellie at the time she addressed to me the foregoing question. We were all comfortably seated in our deck-chairs. The storm of the preceding evening had cleared the sky. The weather was now delightful. "'I have no definite knowledge, mademoiselle,' I replied. "'But cannot we ourselves investigate the mystery quite as well as the detective Ganimard, the personal enemy of Arsène Lupin?' Oh, "'Oh, you are progressing very fast, monsieur.' "'Not at all, mademoiselle. In the first place, let me ask, do you find the problem a complicated one?' "'Very complicated. Have you forgotten the key we hold for the solution of the problem?' "'What key? In the first place, Lupin calls himself Monsieur R.' "'Rather vague information,' she replied. "'Secondly, he is travelling alone.' "'Does that help you?' she asked. "'Thirdly, he is blonde.' "'Well?' then we have only to peruse the passenger list and proceed by process of elimination. I had that list in my pocket. I took it out and glanced through it. Then I remarked, I find that there are only thirteen men on the passenger list whose names begin with the letter R. Only thirteen? Yes, in the first cabin. And of those thirteen, I find that nine of them are accompanied by women, children, or servants— that leaves only four who are travelling alone. First, the Marquis de Ravadon, secretary to the American ambassador, interrupted Miss Nelly, I know him. Major Rawson, I continued. He is my uncle, someone said. Monsieur Rivolta, here, exclaimed an Italian, whose face was concealed beneath a heavy black beard. Miss Nelly burst into laughter and exclaimed, that gentleman can scarcely be called a blonde. "'Very well, then,' I said. "'We are forced to the conclusion that the guilty party is the last one on the list. "'What is his name?' "'Monsieur Rosen. Does anyone know him?' "'No one answered, but Miss Nelly turned to the taciturn young man "'whose attentions to her had annoyed me, and said, "'Well, Monsieur Rosen, why do you not answer?' "'All eyes were now turned upon him. He was a blonde.' I must confess that I myself felt a shock of surprise, and the profound silence that followed her question indicated that the others present also viewed the situation with a feeling of sudden alarm. However, the idea was an absurd one, because the gentleman in question presented an air of the most perfect innocence. "'Why do I not answer?' he said. "'Because, considering my name, my position as a solitary traveller, and the colour of my hair,' I have already reached the same conclusion, and now think that I should be arrested. He presented a strange appearance as he uttered these words. His thin lips were drawn closer than usual, and his face was ghastly pale, while his eyes were streaked with blood. Of course he was joking, yet his appearance and attitude impressed us strangely. "'But you have not the wound?' said Miss Nelly, naively. "'That is true,' he replied. I lack the wound. Then he pulled up his sleeve, removing his cuff, and showed us his arm. But that action did not deceive me. He had shown us his left arm, and I was on the point of calling his attention to the fact, 
when another incident diverted our attention. Lady Jerland, Miss Nellie's friend, came running towards us in a state of great excitement, exclaiming, "'My jewels! My pearls! Someone has stolen them all!' No, they were not all gone, as we soon found out. The thief had taken only part of them. A very curious thing. Of the diamond sunbursts, jeweled pendants, bracelets, and necklaces, the thief had taken not the largest, but the finest and most valuable stones. The mountings were lying upon the table. I saw them there, despoiled of their jewels, like flowers from which the beautiful colored petals had been ruthlessly plucked. And this theft must have been committed at the time Lady Jerland was taking her tea, in broad daylight, in a stateroom opening on a much-frequented corridor. Moreover, the thief had been obliged to force open the door of the stateroom, search for the jewel-case which was hidden at the bottom of a hat-box, open it, select his booty, and remove it from the mountings. Of course all the passengers instantly reached the same conclusion. It was the work of Arsène Lupin. That day, at the dinner-table, the seats to the right and left of Rosanne remained vacant, and during the evening it was rumored that the captain had placed him under arrest, which information produced a feeling of safety and relief. We breathed once more. That evening we resumed our games and dances. Miss Nelly especially displayed a spirit of thoughtless gaiety, which convinced me that if Rosanne's attentions had been agreeable to her in the beginning, she had already forgotten them. Her charm and good humor completed my conquest. At midnight, under a bright moon, I declared my devotion with an ardor that did not seem to displease her. But next day, to our general amazement, Rosanne was at liberty. We learned that the evidence against him was not sufficient. He had produced documents that were perfectly regular, which showed that he was the son of a wealthy merchant of Bordeaux. Besides, his arms did not bear the slightest trace of a wound. "'Documents! Certificates of birth!' exclaimed the enemies of Rosanne. "'Of course Arsène Lupin will furnish you as many as you desire. And as to the wound, he never had it, or he has removed it.' Then it was proven that, at the time of the theft, Rosanne was promenading on the deck, to which fact his enemies replied that a man like Arsène Lupin could commit a crime without being actually present. And then, apart from all other circumstances, there remained one point which even the most skeptical could not answer. Who, except Rosanne, was travelling alone, was a blonde, bore a name beginning with R? To whom did the telegram point, if it were not Rosanne? And when Rosanne, a few minutes before breakfast, came boldly toward our group, Miss Nell and Lady Jerland arose and walked away. An hour later a manuscript circular was passed from hand to hand among the sailors, the stewards, and the passengers of all classes. It was announced that Monsieur Louis Rosanne offered a reward of ten thousand francs for the discovery of Arsène Lupin or other person in possession of the stolen jewels. "'And if no one assists me, I will unmask the scoundrel myself,' declared Rosanne. "'Rosanne against Arsène Lupin, or rather, according to current opinion, Arsène Lupin himself against Arsène Lupin. The contest promised to be interesting.' Nothing developed during the next two days. 
We saw Rosen wandering about, day and night, searching, questioning, investigating. The captain also displayed commendable activity. He caused the vessel to be searched from stem to stern, ransacked every stateroom under the plausible theory that the jewels might be concealed anywhere except in the thief's own room. "'I suppose they will find out something soon,' remarked Miss Nelly to me. "'He may be a wizard, but he cannot make diamonds and pearls become invisible.' "'Certainly not,' I replied. "'But he should examine the lining of our hats and vests and everything we carry with us.' Then, exhibiting my Kodak, a nine-by-twelve with which I had been photographing her in various poses, I added, "'In an apparatus no larger than that, a person could hide all of Lady Jerland's jewels. He could pretend to take pictures, and no one would suspect the game. But I have heard it said that every thief leaves some clue behind him.' "'That may be generally true,' I replied, "'but there is one exception, Arsène Lupin.' "'Why?' because he concentrates his thoughts not only on the theft, but on all the circumstances connected with it that could serve as a clue to his identity. A few days ago you were more confident. Yes, but since then I have seen him at work. And what do you think about it now? she asked. Well, in my opinion, we are wasting our time. And as a matter of fact, the investigation had produced no result but in the meantime the captain's watch had been stolen. He was furious. He quickened his efforts and watched Rosen more closely than before. But on the following day the watch was found in the second officer's collar-box. This incident caused considerable astonishment and displayed the humorous side of Arsène Lupin, burglar though he was, but dilettante as well. He combined business with pleasure. He reminded us of the author who almost died in a fit of laughter provoked by his own play. Certainly he was an artist in his particular line of work, and whenever I saw Rosen, gloomy and reserved, and thought of the double role that he was playing, I accorded him a certain measure of admiration. On the following evening the officer on deck duty heard groans emanating from the darkest corner of the ship. He approached and found a man lying there, his head enveloped in a thick grey scarf, and his hands tied together with a heavy cord. It was Rosen. He had been assaulted, thrown down, and robbed. A card, pinned to his coat, bore these words, Arsène Lupin accepts with pleasure the ten thousand francs offered by Monsieur Rosen. As a matter of fact, the stolen pocket-book contained twenty thousand francs. Of course, some accused the unfortunate man of having simulated this attack on himself. But apart from the fact that he could not have bound himself in that manner, it was established that the writing on the card was entirely different from that of Rosen, but, on the contrary, resembled the handwriting of Arsène Lupin as it was reproduced in an old newspaper found on board. Thus it appeared that Rosen was not Arsène Lupin, but was Rosen, the son of a Bordeaux merchant, and the presence of Arsène Lupin was once more affirmed, and that in a most alarming manner. Such was the state of terror among the passengers that none would remain alone in a stateroom or wander singly in unfrequented parts of the vessel. We clung together as a matter of safety, 
and yet the most intimate acquaintances were estranged by a mutual feeling of distrust. Arsène Lupin was now anybody and everybody. Our excited imaginations attributed to him miraculous and unlimited power. We supposed him capable of assuming the most unexpected disguises, of being, by turns, the highly respectable Major Rawson, or the noble Marquis de Ravadon, or even, for we no longer stopped with the accusing letter of R, or even such or such a person well known to all of us, and having wife, children, and servants. The first wireless dispatches from America brought no news. At least the captain did not communicate any to us. The silence was not reassuring. Our last day on the steamer seemed interminable. We lived in constant fear of some disaster. This time it would not be a simple theft or a comparatively harmless assault. It would be a crime, a murder. No one imagined that Arsène Lupin would confine himself to those two trifling offenses. Absolute master of the ship, the authorities powerless, he could do whatever he pleased. Our property and lives were at his mercy. Yet those were delightful hours for me, since they secured me the confidence of Miss Nellie. Deeply moved by those startling events, and being of a highly nervous nature, she spontaneously sought at my side a protection and security that I was pleased to give her. Inwardly I blessed Arsène Lupin. Had he not been the means of bringing me and Miss Nellie closer to each other? Thanks to him I could now indulge in delicious dreams of love and happiness, dreams that I felt were not unwelcome to Miss Nellie. Her smiling eyes authorized me to make them. The softness of her voice bade me hope. As we approached the American shore, the active search for the thief was apparently abandoned, and we were anxiously awaiting the supreme moment in which the mysterious enigma would be explained. Who was Arsène Lupin? Under what name, under what disguise was the famous Arsène Lupin concealing himself? And, at last, that supreme moment arrived. If I live one hundred years, I shall not forget the slightest details of it. "'How pale you are, Miss Nellie,' I said to my companion, as she leaned upon my arm, almost fainting. "'And you,' she replied, "'ah, you are so changed.' "'Just think, this is a most exciting moment, and I am delighted to spend it with you, Miss Nellie. I hope that your memory will sometimes revert.' But she was not listening. She was nervous and excited. The gangway was placed in position, but before we could use it the uniformed customs officers came on board. Miss Nellie murmured, "'I shouldn't be surprised to hear that Arsène Lupin escaped from the vessel during the voyage. <laughs> Perhaps he preferred death to dishonor, and plunged into the Atlantic rather than be arrested.' "'Oh, do not laugh,' she said. Suddenly I started, and in an answer to her question I said, do you see that little old man standing at the bottom of the gangway, with the umbrella and olive-green coat? It is Ganimard. Ganimard? Yes, the celebrated detective who has sworn to capture Arsène Lupin. Ah, I can understand now why we did not receive any news from this side of the Atlantic. Ganimard was here, and he always keeps his business secret. Then you think he will arrest Arsène Lupin? Who can tell? 
The unexpected always happens when Arsène Lupin is concerned in the affair.' "'Oh!' she exclaimed, with that morbid curiosity peculiar to women, "'I should like to see him arrested. You will have to be patient. No doubt Arsène Lupin has already seen his enemy and will not be in a hurry to leave the steamer.' The passengers were now leaving the steamer. Leaning on his umbrella, with an air of careless indifference, Ganimard appeared to be paying no attention to the crowd that was hurrying down the gangway. The Marquis de Ravardon, Major Rawson, the Italian Rivolta, and many others had already left the vessel before Rosanne appeared. Poor Rosanne! "'Perhaps it is he after all,' said Miss Nelly to me. "'What do you think?' "'I think it would be very interesting to have Ganimard and Rosanne in the same picture. You take the camera. I am loaded down.' I gave her the camera, but too late for her to use it. Rosanne was already passing the detective. An American officer, standing behind Ganimard, leaned forward and whispered in his ear. The French detective shrugged his shoulders, and Rosanne passed on. Then, my God, who was Arsène Lupin? "'Yes,' said Miss Nelly aloud. "'Who can it be?' Not more than twenty people now remained on board. She scrutinized them one by one, fearful that Arsène Lupin was not amongst them. "'We cannot wait much longer,' I said to her. She started toward the gangway. I followed. But we had not taken ten steps when Ganimard barred our passage. "'Well, what is it?' I exclaimed. "'One moment, monsieur. What's your hurry?' "'I am escorting mademoiselle.' "'One moment,' he repeated, in a tone of authority. Then, gazing into my eyes, he said, "'Arsène Lupin, is it not?' I laughed and replied, "'No, simply Bernard d'Andrézy. "'Bernard d'Andrézy died in Macedonia three years ago. "'If Bernard d'Andrézy were dead, I should not be here. "'But you are mistaken. Here are my papers.' They are his, and I can tell you exactly how they came into your possession. You are a fool, I exclaimed. Arsène Lupin sailed under the name of R. Yes, another of your tricks, a false scent that deceived them at Havre. You play a good game, my boy, but this time luck is against you. I hesitated a moment. Then he hit me a sharp blow on the right arm, which caused me to utter a cry of pain. He had struck the wound, yet unhealed, referred to in the telegram. I was obliged to surrender. There was no alternative. I turned to Miss Nelly, who had heard everything. Our eyes met. Then she glanced at the Kodak I had placed in her hands, and made a gesture that conveyed to me the impression that she understood everything. Yes, there, between the narrow folds of black leather— in the hollow center of the small object that I had taken the precaution to place in her hands before Ganimard arrested me, it was there I had deposited Rosanne's twenty thousand francs and Lady Jerland's pearls and diamonds. Oh, I pledge my oath that, at that solemn moment, when I was in the grasp of Ganimard and his two assistants, I was perfectly indifferent to everything, to my arrest, the hostility of the people, everything except this one question. What will Miss Nelly do with the things I had confided to her? In the absence of that material and conclusive proof, I had nothing to fear. 
But would Miss Nelly decide to furnish that proof? Would she betray me? Would she act the part of an enemy who cannot forgive, or that of a woman whose scorn is softened by feelings of indulgence and involuntary sympathy? She passed in front of me. I said nothing, but bowed very low. Mingled with the other passengers, she advanced to the gangway with my Kodak in her hand. It occurred to me that she would not dare to expose me publicly, but she might do so when she reached a more private place. However, when she had passed only a few feet down the gangway, with a movement of simulated awkwardness, she let the camera fall into the water beneath the vessel and the pier. Then she walked down the gangway, and was quickly lost to sight in the crowd. She had passed out of my life forever. For a moment I stood motionless. Then, to Ganimau's great astonishment, I muttered, What a pity that I am not an honest man! Such was the story of his arrest as narrated to me by Arsène Lupin himself. The various incidents which I shall record in writing at a later day have established between us certain ties—shall I say of friendship? Yes, I venture to believe that Arsène Lupin honors me with his friendship, and that it is through friendship that he occasionally calls on me, and brings in the silence of my library his youthful exuberance of spirits, the contagion of his enthusiasm, and the mirth of a man for whom destiny has naught but favors and smiles. His portrait? How can I describe him? I have seen him twenty times, and each time he was a different person. Even he himself said to me on one occasion, I no longer know who I am. I cannot recognize myself in the mirror. Certainly he was a great actor, and possessed a marvelous faculty for disguising himself. Without the slightest effort he could adopt the voice, gestures, and mannerisms of another person. Why, said he, why should I retain a definite form and feature? Why not avoid the danger of a personality that is ever the same? My actions will serve to identify me. Then he added, with a touch of pride, So much the better, if no one can ever say with absolute certainty, There is Arsène Lupin. The essential point is that the public may be able to refer to my work and say without fear of mistake, Arsène Lupin did that. You've been listening to The Arrest of Arsène Lupin by Maurice Leblanc from the collection Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. It seems odd that the gentleman thief should be arrested in the first story in the series, but Lupin, a master escape artist, gave fair warning to his captors that he would not be present for his trial. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best. Thank you.